So Ella Robertson is an author. Her book's just come out. It's called How to Make a Difference. She very much doesn't like them kind of conflating the two, but she's also chair of Conservative Young Women. But what we ostensibly went to talk to her about is a kind of a conference called One Young World. And Ella set this up with her mum a little while ago. Our conversation happened in her front room in a very nice flat, kind of central to West London way. She was absolutely charming company. And let me be blunt with you, listener, I need you to do me a favour. And that is listen past the posh voice. Because despite the fact she does have the poshest voice I have ever heard, and by the way, you're talking to a man that's uh, grown up near Henley-on-Thames, she, um, yeah, she takes it to a whole new level. But actually what she says is quite fascinating. So um, this is my chat with Ella. We cover all sorts of things about the conference. We cover all sorts of things about her book and her relationship with her mum. We find out a bit about her role, the One Young World Conference. Then we also drill it down and we find out what is her rocket fuel? Hello, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. It's lovely to see you. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here. It's great to be, this is a really important area of conversation and I'm really excited to delve into the discussion. So let's start talking about you. Let's talk about your journey. Um, how have you got to where you are and what's the scope of your role? Um, so my mother came up with the idea for One Young World in about 2008-2009 with the first summit taking place in 2010. Um, she co-founded One Young World with her then boss David Jones when they were global president and global CEO of Havas, which is one of the biggest advertising networks in the world. Mm. And for our first couple of years, One Young World was incubated by Havas and we became a fully independent charity um, in our fifth year. Um, so that's the context of One Young World. So as you can imagine, when someone has this full-time job as running an advertising agency and One Young World's their side project, you get a lot of it in the home. Mm. Um, I remember even when I was you know, in sick form on a Saturday going down to, we, we had building work happening at home and going down to a coffee shop and writing letters with my mother to <laughs> ask people to think about supporting. And I mean, you know, looking back to what it was then, it really was amateur hour compared to the operation we have today, but you know, we were all doing our best. And, I think what, what we learned in those days was that you've got to ask for every favour right. and you've got to be not shameless, but humble mm. enough to go, I need help and you look like someone who can help me and realise that might not be the best impression to make on someone that you want to impress, but actually is, is, is important. Uh, so fast forward to me at university where I work at One Young World in many of my summer holidays. Uh, I even come up during term time, which my tutors probably wouldn't have approved of. Um, but you know, I feel like I've got to go and get a proper job. Yeah. Uh, One Young World is about six people at that point, and you know, not not even an independent charity. Uh, so I take a training contract with Freshfield, which is uh, a top five British law firm, which I'm very excited about. You know, that yeah. it's a good, prestigious next step. And law thing. was always going to be the next step. No, time. no, right. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And okay. like many people, I, I did, you know, I've studied English. Yeah. So um, you know, people go, well, go and get a professional qualification, then you can do anything. Uh, so off I trot to law school. Uh, so in England, uh, you can t study a, an arts degree or a, a, a maths degree or whatever it might be and then convert to law. So I start doing the law conversion course and I just found it so boring. And at the same time as I was doing this, One Young World was becoming an independent charity. Okay. So it was a very busy stage in the One Young World's lifespan. You know, even things like our payroll and our server and things like that had all been done by our incubating company. So 
all of this, it was almost like starting up again. So um, I had knee surgery after my first time at law school. Uh, I had to take a break. And during that time, I started working for Running World again. And I said, well, I really don't want to be a lawyer. And my mother, even though she was running One Young World, was like, no, you must be a lawyer. No, 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 no. That's what mums do. Yeah, it was all parents do, mm. right? It's, it's um, very common to want to give your children the most secure future possible. Yeah. And I said, okay, how about this? So it's our fifth summit. It's our first one independently. If it goes well, I will go, I will join One Young World. If it goes badly, fair enough. I will jump okay. ship and go to law school go and, and go and be a cor- <laughs> go and be a corporate lawyer and not see sunshine but earn lots of money. Uh, so that's how I ended up at One Young World, and you know we were about six people then. It was it was very small and very tough. Um, and the next year we went to Bangkok, and I had understood in this year of becoming independent that the best way to secure our, our future was to secure future commitments. Yeah. So I re we had a sort of sort of bidding process for host cities uh so i rebranded that and i formalized it and we had formal site inspections to cities Mm. and um we confirmed to go to bangkok in 2015 and otter in 2016 so we had sort of a two and a half year plan now which was amazing um and that i think was you know, my contribution at that time, which has grown as the organization has grown. Yeah. We're about 35 people now, which is still small, but it's not, it's not tiny. Um, and I'm responsible for everything other than corporate partnerships, really. Okay. Uh, so that includes um, organizing our conference and organizing our community. And securing speakers as well. Yeah, that, that falls into organizing the conference. It. So um, okay. it's, all, it's, a, it's a combination of logistics, strategy, uh, and communications. We'll come back to One Young World in a minute. Sure. Let's focus on you for a second. Have you a mentor? Um, n- no, not right now. I've, I've had, I, I only had one formal mentoring relationship with mm. a guy called Paul Lindy who founded Ella's Kitchen, which was not okay. named after me. His daughter's yeah. also called Ella. Uh, and funnily enough, he, he then started a company called Paddy's Bathroom and we have a dog called Paddy and he has a son called Paddy. So, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, um, and that was very helpful. And I think I would advise having a mentoring relationship, but it's important to know when to call time on it. Okay. Probably from the beginning to say, will you mentor me for six months or three months or something right. like that? Because otherwise if things fizzle out, people can feel a bit awkward or embarrassed and that's that's important to set expectations um i'm lucky in that the one young world network is so vast that i do get to ask a lot of people for advice yeah quite frequently okay. and i'm 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 really really lucky in that um if i email people now and say hello i really love your advice please can we go for a coffee they're happy to do it um now yes that's partly because the one year world network is very strong um and partly because i've built relationships over time but i would also just say to young people and and, and older people for that matter you if you do ask often people are willing to give you give you time um you know things are transactional so they, they want to know kind of what's in it for them and if it, it don't necessarily feel you've got to go for the world's most senior mentor because uh, they've got less time but do ask for help and i one of the interesting things that we've done at one year world is we've seen people set up reverse mentoring schemes, yeah. uh, which has been particularly important in big businesses where the CEOs want to learn about social media, social marketing, or, you know, digital stuff, essentially. Um, and I think that 
you know, I'd encourage older people to think about getting a younger mentor to guide them in areas that they're less familiar. I mean, that's one of the themes of this series of podcasts, actually, mm. what people can learn from younger people. Yeah. And also, I've always been a firm believer that actually small business can help big business and big business can help small business. I think there's, there's yeah. many different skills to be learned across the board, right? Yes, absolutely. And I feel at One Young World, actually, because we work with so many big businesses and so many entrepreneurs, mm. we really see um, the strengths and weaknesses of both. Yeah. Um, so I think the one thing that big businesses need to um, learn from small businesses is you lose your agility as you get bigger. Yeah. And agility and willingness to change or even just to develop is so critical. You know, if you're not growing, you're dying essentially in business. And once you become less agile and stuck, and you become more stuck in your ways, you know, the, the world is adapt is changing so quickly. And if you can't adapt, you you really are in trouble. For small businesses, I think, and this is just a matter of hours in the day, but if there's, you, you, if you can't manage what you can't measure, you have to have processes in place. Um, and whether it's an HR process or a, an invoicing process or a you know, production process, whatever it's going to be, and the sooner you design that process and get your team to stick to it, the sooner they'll believe in it and the sooner you're not winging it anymore and I think I think those are the kind of those are the two things that I think we as One Young World try and really hammer home staying agile but sticking to a process I love that you can't manage what you can't measure well stay mm. with me Ella that's a great quote um, how are you as a manager and how do you like to be managed uh, you'd have to ask my team um, mm -hmm. I think I'm a very fair manager um, and I think that that kind of is my is is my basis of how I do everything. Um, is I you know I, I don't get impatient. Uh, yeah, I, I I I try not to get impatient unless something is you know, obviously late and I'm communicating that expectation and that's me missed. Then I get impatient. What I what I think is really important for for management is being yeah reasonable and fair. I think I think if people know you're going to be reasonable and fair, then people trust that they can come to you with things. Yeah. Um, I think being in a, one of the things that is key to staying agile is not micromanaging. Um, now, like most, like many people, I am obviously a bit of a control freak. Um, and I personally have incredibly high standards. Um, one of the things I've learned is you can't be a perfectionist because you'll crucify yourself. Yeah. That doesn't mean you don't have to have incredibly high standards. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think, oh, well, I'm not a perfectionist, therefore I'm sloppy. Yeah. And then that, that's not what that means. So I think especially right now, you, yes, there'll be times where I feel like if I did this myself, it would be better or it would be faster or it would be different. But you've just got to let go um, if your organization is going to grow because there's just not enough hours in the day to be on top of everybody and it's so demotivating. So I've always said at One Young World, if you've got an idea and you come to me and say, I've got an idea, I think things would improve or it'd be better if we did this. Yeah. I'll be like, yep, do it. I'm not going to do it for you. Yeah. But if your reasoning is sound, I trust you, but you have to make it happen. You don't come bawling to me for money. Don't come bawling to me for resources. Like, go and do it um, and we will support you. So I think as long that's like autonomy is very, very key to my approach. In terms of being managed, you know, I work so hand in hand with Kate, um, who, you know, and working for your mum is not easy. You know, it, it is complicated in many mm. ways and it's difficult for teams to understand the dynamic between um, family mm. members. Can I be bold? Yeah. You just called her Kate. Yeah. What, um, is that work mum? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Kate and, and, and mum at okay. home, on the whole, um, with, you know, a pinch of salt here and there. Yeah. Um, it's quite funny if my dad calls and I'll be like, um, 
Mommy, Dad's just called. You know, it's so, yeah. you know, but it's, it's so, but it is quite separate. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, if you're in a meeting with, you know, the president of Colombia or something like that, you know, you, um, you, you know, you obviously you don't, it, it, you know, and and people do, um, I don't want to say discriminate, but 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 people do make judgments on family members working together. Yeah. And you know, I I feel I've got some other friends who work for parents, and I feel like you've got to prove yourself mm. three times over, like once like to yourself yeah. once to your parent and then again to everybody else um and i think that that's something that's difficult in family businesses but in terms of being managed i would say um we're very frank um and i think the two most important words if you're going to work for your parent or yes ma'am you know yes, and there's a time when you, you would at home you might argue it or you might you know, try and debate the point but if she's like nope that's the way i want it done it's yes ma'am and it gets done it's not oh but <laughs> What qualities do you look for in colleagues and people mm. that you're working with? Um, so my, my work wife is one of your director of operations. She's called Megan and she is my right, my left hand, my left foot, my right foot. Uh, she's just the most competent human. Mm. Um, and she's very different from me. Okay. Um, and I think that's why we work really well as a team. Um, but there's a lot of trust between us. When we hire, it's really interesting. She and I look at such different things. She's always about the experience. She'll go, ah, oh, but they have the experience. They've done this before. And I'll go but they are hungry for it and they're passionate about it. I see. And hunger for work, especially with employing so many young people, is probably my number one quality right now. I, I find that all people who are doing something because they don't know what they want to do yet, you know, I've, I've been in that boat myself, um, or they are thinking life in the charity sector is a bit of a doddle, or they are just not serious about professionalism um, because it's their first job, yeah. you know, and I, I, it's not to denigrate young people because there's so much to be gained from having young employees and having a young workforce, but hunger to work as opposed to, oh, I'm thinking I'm going to do this for eight months and I'm going to have a third gap year, yeah. is not as common as it, it ought to be. Um, and I, I wonder if people who are, you know, sort of the millennials at the top end of the 20s, early 30s, who graduated amidst the recession, just have a slightly different understanding of how grateful you are to have a job versus yeah. people coming out of university today. Um. I want to bring the listener up to speed about your debating and your background. Yeah. Um, I found it fascinating. And also, I want to know what's, what it's brought to your game. Has it helped yes. you be a oh better gosh. orator? Has it helped you deconstruct an argument? All um, of those things. Sure. So, um, my mother was a was a South African debating champion. Um, and always said to me, you'll do debating. So, the first time in prep school, there was a debating class. I was like, oh, this is my thing. Before I'd even done yeah. it. I was very excited for this age, like nine. Um, and I probably wasn't very good, uh, to be honest, but I, I had the sense that I could be good at it. Um, and so I, I just showed up to debating all, uh, every secondary school debating thing. I was there and there wasn't really a junior debating thing. So when I was about 12 or 13, some very kind sixth form said, would you like to come to the sixth form debating club? And I was like, yes, please. Yes, oh, me. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, very uncool. Um, oh. But uh, then I went to school in Scotland and I'd been to, I, this is, I mean, gosh, this is so nerdy, uh, to a debating summer camp where I'd learned a lot about debating. Um, it's run by the English speaking union. Um, and if you are, you've got kids at high school age, I think it's just a really, really brilliant way for them to spend the weekend in the summer. Ella, you're talking to a former United Kingdom junior public speaking and debating champion. Fabulous, there we so go. you can stop apologising for uh, the nerdiness. Well, right yeah, no, the nerdiness is great. The nerdiness mm. is great. And I, I, I then, you know, there was there was some debating at my school in Scotland. There was, you know, a house debating competition or something. And I said, no, but I want to be on the Scottish debating team. 
And uh, they were like, okay. And the reason why this had gone into my head is I had heard that no one from the English debating team had ever not gotten into Oxbridge. Right. And I was like, aha, this is this is the thing to do. And um, so actually since since then, there've been quite a few people who, who haven't gotten in. But uh, I remember when the first person didn't get in, it was like, oh, poor her. <laughs> uh, anyway, so off, I, so off I sort of, I'm sort of determined that I'm going to do this. And I slowly get better at debating. Um, and I, I learned so much from debating, especially about structure. Yeah. Structuring arguments, structuring presentations, um, mm. structuring communication in mm. general. Um, and I also think um, probably the most important thing on a day-to-day basis is rational argument. You know, if someone says to me, oh, I think X or Y politically, I really don't take it personally. And I think a lot of people, Laurie Penny wrote this article about this for the New Statesman or Guardian or something, uh, where she said, oh, you know, that's what's wrong with the Conservatives is they don't take arguments personally. Yeah. Um, and it's not like something, I don't think take some things personally, but I managed to keep things theoretical, keep things academic when, when they should be. Keep the emotion out. Yeah, exactly. Keep the emotion out of it. And I, I think that's very helpful because I think it enables you to just have a much more reasonable discussion and you don't, you don't resort, you don't head for that lowest common denominator of insulting people who think differently from you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I warmly, warmly, you know, I, I debated, I sort of, so I, I went, I did make the Scottish debating team eventually. And the World Debating Championships that year were at the same time as the first one year World Summit. Uh, so it was crazy. <laughs> you know, my mother and I would both had these ambitions that we'd worked very hard for and we were on the other side of the world from each other. Um, and that was in Qatar and we did okay. We, we didn't do as well as we hoped we'd do, but we did okay. Um, and then I debated a little bit at university, but not much because the university I was at, the, the only sort of sport in inverted commas or activity that was taken more seriously than debating in terms of time commitment was probably rowing. Right. Uh, and I, I just kind of didn't really have the time to, or, you know, the energy necessarily spent every weekend doing it okay. at university, but I really recommend it as a, as a skill set. Um, I'm keen to talk about two more things in this section. Yeah, sure. The first is... Would you like shorter answers? No, 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 yeah. not at all. You're fine. We've yeah. got plenty of time if you have. So, no idea, yeah. So let's talk accolades so you are one of management today's 35 women under 35 yes. i've seen other accolades i just wondered what what do accolades do for you as an individual and what use can they have how do you harness that power um i think accolades are you know of course they're nice to have and of course they're flattering to have there was an article written about presidential candidate mayor pete Buttigieg where they were quite scathing about these sorts of lists and the sort of people who are on these lists. Um, and I think the heart of that article was, why are you so busy doing self-promotion in your 20s? Yeah. Um, which I have great sympathy for not enjoying self-promotion myself. But I do think the reality is, is when you're in your 20s, no one thinks of you as being a certain thing. Even if you're a lawyer or a banker or a doctor, so many people change career by the time they're 30 or in their early 30s, that you are just kind of a person, in your, a professional in your 20s, and you don't have a significant professional identity. Why? Because to be honest, you, you've not been doing it for very long. So, you know, you, no one can say, oh yes, that, that accountant of 20 years. Yeah. And so I do think it is important to think about in your 20s how you distinguish yourself. Um, and accolades is a very straightforward way to do that. So, you know, you know it, it, it is great when that happens. Um, and the other thing is, is that... Um, you know, I, I think, I, I personally think it's important to strive for excellence. I think in, in, in England, we sometimes do 
do ourselves down a bit and you know especially in Scotland you know um, there's a great podcast between Gordon Brown and David Tennant who are both the sons of Scottish pastors and they both have parents who are very much like oh don't you know don't brag about oh no 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 do you know be humble and it's very important to be humble but actually I think as women especially women are taught very much not to yeah. show off you know yeah. uh, little girls who want to do their ballet routine in front of the family are show offs um, and I, I think, yes, we don't want to show off, but also we do want to be clear about when we are good at things that, you know, people recognise that and give us opportunities as a result. Um, so we try and create accolades at One Young World, including Politician of the Year, Entrepreneur of the mm. Year. We launched Lead 2030 at the end of last year, which uh, it was the world's largest cash prize fund for the Sustainable Development Goals we gave away. With some corporate partners, we gave away half a million dollars this year. Wow. Um, and we know that that changes people's lives. You know, if you are the council, a council member for a local council in Ghana, mm. and you have been a globally recognised mm. Politician of the Year award, you know, that should be meaningful. And what we wanted to do was help identify stepping stones for young people who wanted to be successful entrepreneurs or wanted to be politicians, that when they were sort of sitting at home in Norway going, I want to be Prime Minister of Norway one day, and they're trying to figure out the steps they're going to take. They go, aha, I should go to One Year World. That, that, that's what people do. Because I think it's very hard to navigate some of these paths. And if we're able to kind of put some cat's eyes on the road to, yeah. to guide people, um, accolades are a meaningful way of doing that. I just finally in this bit want to talk politics. Because when you're yep. not writing your book, when you're not running One Young World, when you're not doing all of these things, you're also chair of the Young Conservative Women. Of Conservative Young Women. Of conservative. So I've got OYW and CYW, I very see. different hats, but uh, yeah, different <laughs> hats, rubbish different. acronyms. How does that impact you as an individual? How does that form as part of your genetic makeup? What's it give you? So I'm, I'm, I am a very uh, socially liberal conservative. I believe you know, what the government does is essentially it takes your money and bosses you about. And I believe it should do both of those things as little as possible. Okay. Uh, and I also feel that people are, on the whole, best at spending their own money. I think if you ask the single mum up the road, you know, I've got an extra 10 quid for you. Who do you trust to spend this in your family's interests? you know, me or the government, you, you, the single mum or the government, she's going to say me and she'll make, on the whole, will make very good decisions with that money. Yeah. You, yes, there are obviously variations of that scenario, but on the whole, that's the heart of my uh, philosophy. Having said that, um, the Conservative Party is having a difficult time with young people. There's been some research for Onward. You know, there's always been this assumption that people get more conservative as they get older. And yes. there's that famous Churchill quote, if you're not a socialist when you're 20, you've got no heart. But if you're a conservative by the time you're 40, you've got no head. You yeah. know, there's all of these sorts of things. And I think actually a variety of things, including austerity, including um, the Corbyn movement, um, including Donald Trump being seen as very much part of the conservative movement now, all those sorts of things. Um, we are at risk of losing a generation of voters who just won't become conservative when they get older. Yeah. So I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that and also spending a lot of time thinking about how we can get more women and especially young women into public life. And what, what drove me to do that was seeing Mark Zuckerberg, excuse me, Mark Zuckerberg testify in front of uh, the US Senate and the US Congress and people genuinely not knowing how Facebook made money. You said back then that Facebook would always be free. Is that still your objective? Senator, yes. There will always be a version of Facebook that is free. It is our mission to try to help connect everyone around the world and to bring the world closer together. In order to do that, we believe that we need to offer a service that everyone can afford, and we're committed to doing that. Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. 
I see. That the, the legislators were asking yeah. was such a poor quality of question that reflected such, quite frankly, ignorance of some of the most important things today. Here's what everybody's been trying to tell you today, and I, I, I say this gently. Your user agreement sucks. I'm going to suggest to you that you go back home and rewrite it and tell your $1,200 an hour lawyers, no disrespect, they're good. But, but tell them you want it written in English, in non-Swahili, so the average American can understand it. And I think, you know, to be honest, I do think a UK Select Committee would have done a better job, so to cool. be fair. But um, it made me realise, you know, that the digital legislation that we will be making in the next 10 years is going to make or break this century. And we need young people at the heart of it. One, because they know more, and two, because they're going to be living with the consequences of it. Um, so in Wales, they have a position of a future generations commissioner who you should think about speaking to, actually. Okay. She's called Sophie Howe, wonderful lady. And they're the first country, Wales the first country to have this position. And she's trying to campaign for more countries to have this position. And One Young World's going to help with that campaign. And her job is to make sure that legislation, all legislation being passed through the Welsh devolved parliament, takes future generations into account and thinks about the impact of that legislation on future generations. It is mad that we don't have that role already. Like, how are we passing legislation without thinking about future generations? So though that, that's my kind of political brief at the moment. In terms of a day-to-day, -day, you know, being on the candidates list uh, means that you have to do a lot of canvassing. It means that you have to stay very involved in party life. Yeah. Um, and I just say to young people who are thinking about getting involved in politics, any political party, whether it's Green, Labour, you know, Tories certainly will be so thrilled that you're there as yeah, a young person. I agree. Um, and they're so grateful because ultimately they're voluntary organisations. So just as if you're going to go and volunteer for a soup kitchen or something, they're very grateful for your time. So it's much more welcoming and warm and friendly than a lot of people might imagine from having watched something like House of Cards. I didn't want to focus on politics, but mm. I'm fascinated by this mm. discussion. So I'm going to ask two more questions. Yeah, go for it. At time of recording, Boris Johnson has just become Prime Minister. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts on him as a Conservative leader? And, bold question, how bad a job did you think Theresa May did? Um, so, taking those in reverse, I think I was a big fan of Theresa May. I, put, I actually put money on her becoming Prime Minister before the referendum. Uh, so, maybe, maybe I had a vested interest. But I, I really had such high hopes for her. Um, and I think she really was thwarted by circumstances. Um, I think... Partly, you know, Brexit is just, what a hard job. I think everyone in the country is now aware of how hard that is. Uh, and I think also, you know, at the point when, when they announced Boris Johnson as leader of the Conservative Party, one of the returning officers said, let's hope we're kinder to the next Prime Minister than we were to the last. Yes. And I think for people to be saying that about behaviour within a party is shameful. You know, we should not have unkindness. Uh, unkindness is one of my least favourite qualities. And I, and I do think people unkind to Theresa May, and I do think it, 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 it was bad for the country. It was Particularly ironic that she was the one that addressed the Conservative Party conference saying some people still think of us as the nasty party. Yeah, and they were nastier and to her than anybody else. Yeah. Um, uh, look, I, I think with Boris Johnson, I think I, um, I've had the uh, privilege of meeting him twice uh, in the last sort of 10 days or so. Um, once I, he was at a telephone campaign evening that I was at um, and he remembered my name. So I was, I was quite pleased about that because yeah. the time previously I'd interviewed him about issues that matter to young women. So I've got to say, when you eyeball the person who's likely to become prime minister, you don't necessarily want to go with yep. tampon tax as one of the first talking sure. points. But, um, you know, I sort of 
uh, bit my lip and, and got on with it. Um, and I, and I think he was much more knowledgeable and um, eager to engage on issues like domestic violence and period poverty than you would necessarily expect. You know, I've worked with world leaders, presidents, prime ministers, or in many countries. And there are not many who would have given you better answers, to be honest. You know, we've got to be aware that the state of the way in which the world regards women is not great. And I don't, I don't think he's a misogynist. Um, I don't think he's a racist, but do I think he is um, cat-handed with the way that he handles issues? And does he go for a cheap gag now and then? Yes. Um, But I think we probably all have friends and relatives who do that. I (laughs) I don't think that's an unusual trait, uh, but I hope it is one that he leaves at the door of number 10 uh, for the next couple of years. You know, I don't think we need... Yeah, gaffes are increasingly serious the more senior you become. And I think especially with things like the Iran scandal, um, we we can only hope that he is very thoughtful about the way in which he communicates. Okay, we're going to come on now and let's talk about your business. We're going to talk about One Young World Bring it to life for us. I mean, it's been called the Junior Davos. Is that is that moniker broadly correct? What happens? Bring, tell us about a day in the life at One Young World. Yes, yeah, so um, CNN, called, uh, Richard Quest, in our first ever year, called us the Junior Davos. Uh, China Daily called us the Olympics of the social field, okay. uh, which I think is probably slightly more apt because uh, it has a very Olympic World Cup kind of feel. Like the atmosphere is so contagiously positive and exciting. The closest thing I can describe to it is Twickenham on game day or, you know, some really big sporting event where everyone's kind of really ready to roar. It's that electrifying, uh, which I don't think you find at other conferences. That's what's very, that's kind of part of our secret sauce is the fact that we managed to get this incredible energy going, which comes from a combination of lots of young people and lots of countries. You know, people show up in their national dress, which from places like, um, Palau, you know, to places like Moldova, to Colombia, you know, I mean, there's just everything. And that in itself is exciting and dynamic. Yeah. So, um, One Young World is the global forum for young leaders. Um, we bring together the world's uh, brightest, most socially impactful young leaders who uh, have already got a track record of leadership. Young for us is 18 to 30. Uh, our average age is around 26, 27. So it's towards the upper end of that. And that's a very interesting group of young because you're old enough to be quite realistic, but you're still young enough to be idealistic. So it's not student tub thumping, (laughs) but it's not C-suite cynicism either. It's very, it's quite a sweet spot when it comes to, I'm still young enough to be super optimistic and idealistic, but maybe I'm old enough to have a mortgage. So, you know, I'm not about to just go and protest for seven weeks because I have a job that I need to be at or I have a kid. So that's why I think it's an interesting demographic. So what happens every year is that we have an annual summit and that is our flagship program. It's about three and a half days worth of panels, discussions, speeches, networking, uh, workshops, partying, um, bookended by a spectacular opening and closing ceremony. And it's going to be held in London this year. It's our 10th one. And the opening ceremony will be at the Royal Albert Hall on the 22nd of October. And you've got to imagine, because we have a flag ceremony and cultural performances, so it's going to be a bit like the opening ceremony and the Royal Variety Show have a baby at the proms. Okay. Uh, so just, you know, really fun, really spectacular, um, and very, very patriotic, which is quite an old-fashioned thing to yeah. have flags and things like that. Yeah. But I do personally believe that patriotism is the cornerstone of every healthy society. And when you see these young people come 
from you know, Mali or Tuvalu and they're the only representative of their country and the pride with which they have of holding their flag on that main stage. It's so important that we don't, in our concern about nationalism, sweep over the importance of these identities, which do deserve our respect. Um, and it was really inspired by, um, so my family are Olympic nuts. We've been to five sets of Olympics. Wow. And you, Kate, growing up in South Africa, um, you know, South Africa didn't compete in the Olympics. So it was very meaningful to her when in 1992, the, the newly formed Republic of South Africa went into the Olympic Stadium. Uh, they didn't even have a flag yet. They went in under the Olympic flag. Wow. That's how recent apartheid had, recently apartheid had ended. So this has always been important to us. And one of the kind of most crucial or crystallizing moments, I think, for, for Kate um, and, and for me as well, was we were watching this on television. We weren't actually there. But at the Athens Olympics, um, which we went to later, but we, for the opening ceremony we watched on television, the biggest cheer going into that stadium in 2004 was not for the massive American team, which won lots of medals. It wasn't for the home Greek team. Yeah. It was for the tiny bedraggled and bedazzled teams from Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. And that was the human family saying, we are sorry for your struggle and whatever it might say on the news, mm. you know, we, we've got your backs. And I think when you bring the whole human family together, you get that. You know, the biggest cheer at the One Young World Summit at the moment probably goes to the flag of the refugee nation. We were the first organization to formally acknowledge that flag. So um, that's what happens at One Young World at the summit. Um, and people go away super inspired. And it touches politics, business, entrepreneurialism, yeah. all of these different topics. Yes. I'm oh, sorry. You've got me going on a flag rabbit that's hole. That's, a, that's always a danger zone for me. Um, yes, so we, the, the, the subject matter is decided by a, a series of votes and consultations in which several thousand young people around the world take place to talk about the issues that young people are most concerned about and the issues that young people are most active in. And from those two sort of subject areas, yeah. we decide um, wh what the main topics will be. So there's never one single theme. There's okay. you know, four or five themes over the three days. Um, um, one of the very cool things is that every young person who comes to the summit, be they whether they come through through a company corporate program or whether they come on one of our several hundred scholarship schemes, we did about five hundred scholarship places this year for which we had over fifty thousand applications, yeah. wow. uh, which was very exciting. Um, so the they get the opportunity to apply to give a keynote speech. So yes, you'll see figures like Justin Trudeau or um, you know the Duchess of Sussex or whoever it might be on the stage at One Young World, but you'll also see a young girl from Eritrea which is who Meghan Markle introduced at One Young World when she came in 2014. Uh, so that's that's quite thrilling. So, But the idea is that, yes, you have the time of your life at this summit, but that is not the point of the movement. The point of the movement is that you then go home and you accelerate change. And some some of these, some youth conferences and some you know, other social conferences say, oh, you go home and you do something. That doesn't yeah. really work for our audience because they're, they're already doing something. That's how they've earned their spot at the summit. Okay. So you go home and you accelerate, you catalyze, you grow, you repeat you scale um, and you do it with this added fuel in your tank or rocket fuel from uh, from the inspiration, the network, the information um, that you get from One Young World. And bold question, what would critics of One Young World say? How would they slag it off? How could they... Yeah, um, I, it's kind of funny actually, you know, I, we, I mean, we've been very blessed in our Ten years in that, you know, most of the coverage has been broadly incredibly supportive. Yeah. Um, you, know, Ian King, who's you know a fairly cynical Sky mm. News presenter, came last year uh, to to interview some CEOs. You know, he wasn't there to 
um, to, to sing our praises. And he ended up writing this incredibly passionate piece going like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I've just seen. It's yep. incredible. So I do think, you know, as, as kind of liberal and uh, wishy-washy as sometimes it can sound from the outside, you know, people who come to it are rarely cynical once they've come and seen it. Okay. Uh, because it is so action-oriented in terms of what people speak about. And do you think about the brand of what Yeah, absolutely. Like? And so the, 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 the criticisms tend to come from the left. They say we're too corporate. Okay. Uh, you know, because we, we fundamentally believe that big business has to be part of the solution on whether it's climate change, modern-day slavery. You, know, you need big businesses to bring their scale and their... Uh, power of leverage and their supply chains and so on to to the table and on the other side sorry sorry, sorry. No, uh, on the other side the 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 right wing would say that we are just too socially liberal okay um and but i i kind defy them to look in the eyes of the lgbt campaigner from burundi who is risking his life and say actually these things aren't important uh so i think you know we we're, we're very liberal and we're very you know i think I don't know this phrase, but it's a very woke. Uh, but but also the 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 presence of big business and the extent to which we allow big businesses to share is is criticised by by some. Um, so I think you know. It, it, but it, it, the when you really get it to the heart of what the young leaders are doing mm. in their communities and in their countries, I think people tend to go. You know what, like. No, no, nothing's perfect, but the outcome that these young leaders are generating is meaningful. Have you said no to any brands being involved? Is, are there brands that you might not want to get involved? Um, I tell you what, let's take that one offline for the moment. Uh, we, we're literally having a discussion about this with our board this week. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> That's fine. How funny. There we are. That's yeah. fine. Don't worry at all. Okay. I'd have, I'd, I'm sure I will have a different answer next week than I would have done last <laughs> okay, week. Okay, fine. <laughs> Interesting. You've really fascinated me there. You'll have to let me know. Yeah, I'll tell you. (laughs) Okay, so let's jump into defining the brand. Yeah. There must have been a brand extension that you've said no. I mean, there there could be TV shows on this. There could be podcasts on on your Um, world. Where's the brand going and what have you said no to? (laughs) Where the brand is going is we want people to know, more people to know about us. Yeah, we're still unknown, but mm. we're only 10 years old, so fair enough. And we had, you know, look, we had something like 2.2 million people tune into our live stream when we broadcast the summit last year. So we're becoming known, yeah. but, you know, we, we, we do want to be a household name. That is really important to us. Um, and we do want to be an international institution with the gravitas of something like the Red Cross, okay. but for young people. So that is really the ambition, is that we really, really do want to be an institution. Um... In terms of the brand, it's it's important to us that our brand stays very young, so we make sure we hire young. You know, when you come to One Young World, you'll go, oh, I'm meeting very young people. And we yeah. go, yes. Uh, you know, this is not about old people telling young people what's what. That is fundamentally not what we're about. Um, in terms of brand extension, there's very little we would say no to. Um, okay. you know, we, we are very accommodating, and we've, uh, the team are very good at making things happen. You know, we have a lot of last-minute requests. Um, someone said, oh, can, we, can we build a... a um, rocket outside the convention center that's a third the size of our real one so yeah trying to get permits for rockets uh that's that's a unique one for dublin city council wow uh someone said one year they they wanted to do a big thing about um insects being the future of food and they yep. wanted to bring a thousand locusts <laughs> and i was like no i mean they will eat all the food in mm. pennsylvania and actually they were already dead the locusts were already dead so we, that was that was allowed i was like what no we can't just fall with locusts um so so you know we we do make things happen i think um 
you know, we would we would love for there to be more exposure. Um, it's just how many hours there are in a day for a team of thirty five people, um, and that's you know, like many smaller organisations, everyone's got twelve ideas, and it's not a case of if they're going to happen; it's just a case of when they're going to happen. Sure. Um, because there's no point in executing things sloppily. Um, this was the first year that our community team they ran one new program in their Entrepreneur of the Year award. But the, it was the first year we didn't run multiple new programs because they just said, you know, we're doing enough and we need to double down and do everything really well before we start tacking more things on. Um, but yeah, I would love I would love for people to be able to get to know the young leaders better because they are the, the heart of what we do. Um, and do you keep an eye on the competition? Are there other conferences you take inspiration from? Are there, mm. Where do you get your inspiration um, so I guess I guess I guess there's two types of competition. Is yes, there are other conferences, um, some of which we attend. Um, I funny see this is quite a funny thing. So people who organise conferences love organising conferences so much that they organise conferences about organising conferences. Yeah. Uh, so you will get sort of you know, all these conference industry professionals get together quite frequently, and I speak at those events quite often actually because a lot of my people who have helped me out along the years are in that industry. I uh, so I, I go and speak at what I call conference conferences not infrequently. Um, so other conferences, yes, they do inspire us. Um, and you know, we go to them and we kind of go, aha, their app, we should change our app. Uh, in terms of, then there's the other type of competition might be other youth organizations. Um, and I think what, what we find difficult is that a corporate partner who might be investing in us and then say, you know, another youth organization that maybe deals with school children is they'll say, oh, you guys should collaborate more. And that would never happen in the corporate sector. You would never get someone saying to Dr. Pepper Snapple, oh, you should collaborate with Coke more. Like, it just wouldn't happen. <laughs> but in the charity sector, people really do shove you together a lot. And what's difficult for us is, even though we, aren't, we may be youth charities, it would be a bit like saying, oh, you're both animal charities. And you're like, yes, but you're the RSPCA and I'm Elephant Rescue. Not a lot we can do together. Sure. And it does feel like that sometimes. Um, and and, and you know, the reality is, um, you know, Prince William gave a speech about this, about where the charity sector can become too competitive and to the extent that it becomes territorial. Um, you, you know, it does happen and we are, we very much try to make sure it doesn't happen around us. So something we've done to try and offset that in a, res- in a way that is respectful to other youth organisations is we host an event called the Young Leadership Alliance, okay. which is like one of those conference conferences. It's an industry association day almost yeah. for other people who run youth organisations, okay. especially youth charities. And we host that the day before One Young World. Um, so that people can get together, share knowledge, share experiences, share challenges. And if some collaboration comes out of that, amazing. Yeah. But we're not sort of patronizingly sitting people around a table and saying, you should all work together because okay. that does happen quite a lot when you're a charity and it's very frustrating. And a lot of the time donors and funders feel like they have, you know, that they, they are in a position to sort of tell you how to do those sorts of things. And no one I know in the charity sector thinks it's helpful, but we do share you know, coming back to accolades, so one of the issues that a lot of youth charity face, charities face is that the same group of young people from around the world have got the same amount of accolades and mm. they're kind of doing the conference circuit. And we're all kind of looking at them going, no, we want people who are doing stuff right. in your communities. If you're going to all these conferences, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that came up last year is how do we make sure that we're finding pe- you know, people who aren't the usual suspects, yeah. for example. So we're trying to share knowledge on those sorts of areas. Um, and uh, we're hosting Amnesty International helping us host the event this year. Wow. So that's how we kind of, rather than thinking of it as competition, we think of it as trying to convene people and bring people in the room and trying to expand understanding. 
Um, and that's really how we try to how we try and deal with that. You get an element of collaborative spirit, I suppose. Yeah, and 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 a, and a collegiate spirit yeah, certainly. Sure. That means you know, if someone comes to us and says, "I want to run this program," you know, when you're very new, you go, "Sure, like I don't think we can, do, I don't, we can't do that, but we're going to make it happen anyway because we need the money." You know, and once you get to that stage of where you go, oh, "Wow, that's really not we, what we do." Yes, of course, I would love to pick up the phone to an actress or we do or whoever it goes and said, "Listen, I've had someone come in and they want to run a program for primary school kids." We, you know, this is this is right up your street, and we we're doing more of that as a, as a sector. As, as we all grow. Um, and, and, you know, all the other people who run these youth organizations are wonderful people who share our vision for the world. So it, it's an easy area in which to foster collaborative spirit. Here's a question I cannot imagine you're going to answer in a straight way. <laughs> here we go. What's the single most inspiring thing that's happened as a direct result of One Young World? <laughs> so... To, to give the, that answer context, um, that's a, a personal question. Mm. I think, you know, I don't think I would give the same answer as other people sure. in my team and other one-on-one ambassadors. So to capture this, we work with PwC to produce an annual impact report measuring the social return on investment of all these projects every year. Um, so to come back to you can't manage what mm. you can't measure, you know, we make sure we're measuring the impact. Um, I think for me, I think... You know, this, this changes every year. You know, we've had Yonmi Park, the famous North Korean defector who gave a speech that went super viral, who got a book deal and scholarship to Columbia University. I mean, you know, I, yeah. the, 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 there's so much that comes out of it. We've just had someone announce that he's going to run for president of the Republic of Congo. Wow. Uh, so, you know, and everything in between. I think one of the most inspiring things in the past year, though, to just give a specific example, um, I was at an event in... The Netherlands uh, that I'd gone back to, and I hadn't met this delegate properly at the summit. Um, but one of our corporate partners selected him as a scholar, and they were really looking for not the usual suspects. They said we want to find the pearls of society that no one else has found. These secret, mm. you know, who, who just haven't had any recognition. Anyway, so this guy is, I think, Moroccan Dutch originally, um, and started a project in Amsterdam um, where he would help kids from impoverished backgrounds find places to do their homework. You know, places where there were computers, um, where the lights would be on all night, where there would be other mentors there. And I think this grew from one little hub mm. to 26. Wow. And he said, um, you know, no one gave a damn. You know, there was no news coverage. No one supported them. No one gave them any, there were no accolades. And he won the One Young World Scholarship and he said, and that changed my life. You know, suddenly that one thing, we were getting press attention. He was nominated to have lunch with the King and Queen of the Netherlands and he was nominated for Amsterdamer of the Year, which wow. is a pretty massive award. Mm. Um, and he went to the award ceremony and there were people like there, like the guy who founded Pride Amsterdam. You know, I mean, you know, it was, yeah. wasn't Young Amsterdamer of the Year. This was all Amsterdamers. And this one guy um, had the smallest group of supporters. So when they announced them all, his, his noise was kind of the smallest. Yeah. And he won! That's and he cool. won! And he said, you know, it just wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for One Young World. It, you know, it was totally... That gave me the lift off I needed. And I think that's what we want to do is, is not... You know, One Young World is not the end of your journey at all. Um, you know, we're not the highest accolade you're going to achieve. We want to launch people into the world so they can you know, do more for their community and be celebrated along the way. 
And Kate and I were so pleased when we saw that he'd won this. We were at home uh, together and you know, I don't know if we pajamas, but we were probably on you know, trackies. And um, we sent him a little video saying how proud we were of him. And, he, and then he, he told me a couple of days, he's like, my dad says he watches this video every day. He doesn't actually speak English, but he just, you know, he was so thrilled that you guys oh, were so amazing. proud of me. So, you know, these things are very personal. Yeah. The relations are personal, you know, and I mean, he's one of you know, 2,000 young people. So, you know, Abdul Hamid, uh, is his name and he, he's just amazing but it there's so many of these stories um, that really build up to most incredible collective action um, and really now the challenge is for us to really try and harness the collaborative potential the knowledge exchange um, and and mentoring and support to make sure that these things don't just go off into the ether but they're captured and the energy um, <clears throat> stays within the same network and is and is passed on to the next generation of ambassadors, and that we can grow in a in a in a way in which gives back to the community. And how has this how has this journey led to you being asked, or how has it led to you writing a book? Tell us about your book. So um, it, it, it's interesting that a lot of people say to us, not so much one year world ambassadors. Um, but people outside of One Young World go, oh, I'm so inspired by One Young World. I want to know how to make a difference. How can I make a difference? And you get some people at the end of One Young World go, wow, I've had this incredible life-changing experience. I'm so inspired, but do I want to, oh my gosh, refugees, the rainforest, period poverty, climate change. Oh my gosh, what do I do? How, what, how, how do I get started? Um, or they know what they want to do. You know, they, they know that they want to do something about climate refugees, but they go, ah, yeah. what do I, you know, Joe sitting here in, you know, Birmingham do about climate refugees? Um, and so that was the kind of, that question of how, how do I make a difference? How to make a difference um, was our starting point. And um, the other part was wanting to collate expertise. Um, I think we're very big on that one young world is making sure that we have the right people in the room to share knowledge um, and to profile the work of one year world ambassadors. So in the book, you will find, we interviewed over a hundred activists for the book, more than 60 of them are in the book. Um, some of whom are very famous Nobel Prize winning laureates mm. uh, and some of whom are one year one ambassadors that you won't have heard of. Okay. Um, and so we've interviewed them for very practical advice on how to make a difference, not like why or wherefore, but you, what do you do if you want to change the law? Do you need a lawyer? How do you get one? Okay. Um, so, and we've tried not to make it too basic because it is a global book. You Who's the book aimed at? Um, so Anybody it, that wants to Yeah, I, th I really think it's for anyone. Okay. Um, you know, the publishers have got this image in their minds of the mum at the supermarket in a region of the UK that I won't name right now, but, right. you know, who are very far removed potentially from, um, you know, a Westminster activist. Okay. Um, but if you are very knowledgeable about activism, I think you will find it fascinating to lift the lid on, mm. on many of the movements with which you will be familiar from the news. But if you are, you know, the mum who really wants to save the local playground uh, from council cuts... You know, this should be very helpful for you. It is very informative and it's very inspiring. It's part toolkit, part inspiration. Yeah, Does exactly. Okay, yeah. nice. Handbook is uh, it's the definitive handbook from the world's most effective activists. Tell the listeners what the book's called. It's called How to Make a Difference uh, and it is out. Uh, it's been published by uh, Casal for Hachette, um, which and it will be out on August the 8th in all good bookshops and probably some bad ones too. Okay, I'm still with Ella, and this is the part of the uh, conversation that we're, where we uncover your rocket fuel. These are practical insights that the listener, 
probably working in youth culture, youth marketing, talking to young audiences, and they want to get the benefit of your experience and have some actionable things that they can take into their daily lives. So your rocket fuel, Ella, what do you know about young audiences? I would say that young audiences are different depending on their the demographic. I think it is worth digging into the research by all sorts of people, but I think the research I found very helpful is um, the Deloitte Millennial Survey is very good. Uh, some of the Barclays research on Gen Z or Gen Z is very good. I think it is worth delving into that if it's not your bread and butter, if you don't have an instinct for it. Mm. Look at the research because it will surprise you. Um, and I think, you know, uh, millennials go up to well into their mid-30s now um, and they're not really young, young anymore. Mm. Um, and I think that's important to remember. The other thing I know is that um, impatience is critical, um, whether that's with advertising, whether that's with getting to the point, whether that's with authenticity. Um, so I think be be mindful of how much information this audience is receiving um, and that they will not be patient with you getting your message out there. Um, the third thing I would say is people are hungry for messages about sustainability and how they can make a difference and how they can make the world a better place, whether that's with what they buy, what they read, what they share. Um, and I think as communicators, we all have a duty to make that more possible for people. So if you're able to share a story about a sustainable sneaker brand or you know a, a local coffee shop that helps you know um victims of domestic violence get back on their feet or whatever it might be where you're able to share these stories um i i think it adds it's it's that that's something that we all need right now and i think young audiences particularly are appreciative of that it's funny you've kind of drifted into my second question already which was going to be in an age of brand purpose what is most important to young audiences and you've kind of touched on themes of authenticity and making a difference did you want to expand on that at all i think when it comes to purpose i think um there's a there's a pr agency called porto valley that's does that does a lot of research on purpose and i think living your purpose as a brand that they, they point this out very eloquently um is Yes, it's about your product. Yes, it's about the way you communicate. It's also about your employees mm. uh, and the way in which they can work. And it's also about your offices and what they're like. And I think really defining your purpose and then living your purpose is um, really critical. Mm. And it is worth taking time, probably on an annual basis, to pause, to look at that messaging, to say, oh, have we lived this purpose? Mm. Have, we, have we stuck to what we said we were going to do um, is this still our purpose? Um, and, and keeping on coming back to that. And I do think it's important to um, have some element of social impact now, um, you know, it, whatever you are. So, and, and I think we used to say, you just needed a mission statement and that was what you had to do as a company. Mm. So I think McDonald's used to be something like to be our customer's favorite place to eat. Um, and I think Johnson and Johnson's was to make all, every, everyday or ordinary products for ordinary folks mm. or something like that and i think that's all well and good like i think i think that's perfectly nice but i i remember hearing about those a couple of years ago and be like oh that's a great mission statement and now i for me and i, I don't know you forgive me if those are incorrect but if they're if they but they they're not good enough now 
you know, what bit of that says in a way that will safeguard our future for our children's children. And if we're not engaging with that as business people and as communicators, um, you could essentially, you could, you could be doing more. So, and that massively feeds in, just jumping around into the one young world ethos, mm. doesn't it? And that your point earlier about big business absolutely needing and must be having a seat at the captain's table for change, it kind of feeds into that, doesn't it? So I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, ultimately, you know, if, you, if you're looking back on your career, you know, it's great to have done exciting deals. Of course, it's great to have made money. Uh, you know, Ray Dalio says, you know, ultimately from a career, you want meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And I think if you are not contributing to a m more fair, safe and sustainable future, I don't know if your work can truly be meaningful, given what we now know about the state of the world. The problems are so big that it is upon all of us to be part of the solution. What's changed about young audiences and what do you think is about to change about young people? So when we started One Young World, we were the, one of the first conferences you would have seen talking about social media activism. Mm. Uh, we had a guy called Oscar Morales talk about the first, big first Facebook protest in 2010, which was the Million Voices Against FARC. Uh, and Mark Zuckerberg at the time called him the world's most important Facebooker. Wow. And that was before the Arab Spring. Mm. So, you know, um, we've been thinking about this for a long time. I think um, the pace that, with which um, we share the, and the amount that we share digitally has changed. Um, and there's a kind of acceptance that a lot of your private life will be online. You know, there are some YouTube, amazing YouTube channels about foster families. Mm. And there's these kids and their teens sharing their stories about being in foster care and being adopted and so on. And I found that so humbling. And I was like, gosh, you know, in the future, you're, you could be dating somebody and they could go online and find all this about, about mm. you, this very private stuff mm. about you before your third date. Um, but there is this kind of acceptance that we will share in that way. Are you on social media? Alex? I am. I am. Um, and I... I like social, I really do like social media. I'm not brilliant at it, but I, I do like it. I think the thing that's going to change is I think the privacy questions that we're asking ourselves now, I think are going, someone's going to put their foot on the brake soon and we're going to rethink our relationship with, um, with sharing. Um, particularly, I think what people will become savvy to is the means with which people collect data on us. I think yeah. we will start learning more about that. And I think, you know, it's one thing if we share, I love skiing, if we write that as a status, or if we like Whistler, or do you know what I mean? If we, if we, if we tick like of certain groups, um, and from that information, Facebook gleans, you like skiing, I'm gonna send, try and sell you some skis. It is quite another thing if we, are, if we post an album of photos called The Time of My Life, there is no language that relates to skiing, and from the image analysis that Facebook might be doing, yeah. they gain that you're a big skier. Mm. And off the basis of that, they sell you skis, mm. right? Um, and I think those sorts of questions of being like, okay, actually by putting this out there, I'm giving companies, politicians, um, potentially nefarious actors information about me that they can then use to, um, I think manipulate is a strong word because I'm not sure anyone really does change their mind off the basis of a Facebook ad, but... I, th I think we will just become more savvy about that and young audiences will become savvy fastest. Okay. Who gets it right and who gets it wrong when talking to young people? 
I think a lot of podcasts get it right. Um, and I think a lot of YouTubers get it right um, when they share... Hello, I'm really sorry. Can you yeah, say sorry, 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 sorry. Uh, yeah, I think, I think a lot of podcasters get it right. I think a lot of YouTubers get it right because the way in which that authenticity comes across because it is more long form. I think I think if people find that really enjoyable and accessible, mm. it's not a Snapchat, it's not an Instagram story. It is, you, you get that long form. Um, I think actually, actually the way in which, um, even though people don't like a lot of things that Instagram does, I think the way in which Instagram communicates changes is actually, it's very native to its platform. Yeah. And it's very kind of, logical um even if people don't like the lack of chronology on, on the timeline um i think it's also really interesting that they're trying they're playing with removing the like display mm. i i personally to be really frank i might share more on instagram if i wasn't self-conscious about it, it would get too few likes really? yeah and you, you get a lot of um especially gen, gen z and gen yeah. alpha who will post something that doesn't get enough likes they delete it yeah you know so it, um you know i think i don't think it's worrying that children are, are worried about posting what time they're going to post something because of like amounts. Let me be blunt, Ella. When I said really with surprise, I was aware that people feel like that. I just didn't think that you would feel like <laughs> Yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I think we all do. You know, I think, I think social media, like just the nature of it, you know, is, is there's a metric, um, and it's called likes. So, you know, we all, to some extent want to be liked and you go, wow, well, I'm less liked than, yeah. you know, my, my friend Rachel. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think those th- those things matter, and you, you know, we're all. I there's a, there's a there's a lady who's on my one of my committees for a politics thing, and she talks about her brand, and she's 21, but she's very like very much like this is my brand, this is not my brand. I wouldn't post this picture because it's not on brand, um, and yeah, that I mean is a marked mm. difference to what I was thinking about when I was 21. Final question. Um... What's the one key takeaway for everyone listening? What one key takeaway about young people should everybody keep forefront in mind? I think what One Year World just showed is that young leaders are exceptional in many ways, partly because of the digital native connectivity element um, and partly because of the times that we live in. Um, and if you think about the difference between really, really being really, really good at something when you're 26 and when you're 46, your success is mainly going to be hampered at the age of 26 by your lack of network, by your lack of access to funds, by your lack of reputation, just things that because you've been doing it for less time. Um, yes, by your lack of experience, but I actually think it's more um, but because your young people won't give you a shot. Um, and I think if, if you are young finding ways to close that gap um, and go, okay, right, well, I'm not as well known. How can I become better known? Or I'm not as well networked. How can I accelerate those these things? Comparing yourself to someone who's got 20 years more experience than you is a helpful way to think about how to get ahead. And I think if you're not young, looking to invest in young people to help close that gap is probably a really, really great way to help grow your company because the the knowledge and the the energy that you can gain from having these young people highly engaged with what you're doing um, really can be rocket fuel. Okay. Last point, where can people get in touch with you on social media? Where do you want people finding you and what, what do you want people to get in touch with you about? Um, if you would like to find out more about me, uh, my Instagram is at Ella Robertson underscore. And my Twitter is at Ella Robertson. Uh, but also, please do follow One Young World on at One Young World across all the channels. Um, you know, you'll find absolutely brilliant content 
um, that's incredibly inspiring. But um, yeah, I'm always, you know, very, very happy to help people navigate, um, you know, various elements relating to One Young World. Um, there's a great young entrepreneur in New York uh, who has a brand called Chiffon Jewelry who called me up and at 100 miles an hour started explaining to me about her, new, her business and why she wanted to mentor. And I was like, yeah, I, 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 sure, just because, you know, I, you couldn't really say no. And um, there was a fabulous profile of her on the Wall Street Journal earlier this year. Michelle Obama was wearing her jewelry on talk shows, wow. you know. So I think it's always great to work out um, how people can support each other. I'm a big fan of women supporting women, especially. Um, but yes, I think social media is a great way to um, build these networks and enhance collaboration. Final question, then I'll let you go, Ella. What are your own personal ambitions? What do you want to achieve? Um, I think what I'm really interested in is fairness of, in order of creating equal opportunities for people. And I think that the thing that I'm that most I think about most probably is the extent to which our communities have been hollowed out by the modern age. You know, we don't have churches or mines or men's working clubs or village halls, whatever it might have been that we used to have. Um, and the, that's applicable across across different countries with different different tropes. Mm. And as a result, our communities and our sense of togetherness have been hollowed out. And my experience of building communities of One Young World has made me realise how important these relationships are to happiness. So I would like to spend a lot of my career working on how we can use technological solutions to rebuild those traditional community structures. Because you can't go around making people more religious or <laughs> reopening the coal mines, despite what some Labour politicians might have you think. So I, I think trying to innovate so that people can feel more connected, less lonely, have fewer mental health struggles, uh, feel more supported, I think that that is a very useful way to think about spending one's life. And that is an interesting challenge to which I would like to dedicate a lot of brain power. I hope you agree that was a great chat. Fascinating conversation, a really awesome guest. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Um, you can get in touch with us across all socials at We Are Rocket or with me directly at James Erskine on Twitter. For more, Tune in next week. Uh, we're still in our first season. We're still kind of evolving what we're going to try and do. We know that we want to learn from people in the youth culture, youth marketing space to establish what their rocket fuel is. Give us a five-star review, share the podcast, and tune in again next week. Thanks for listening. This is a Rocket Audio production.